0: Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help.
1: I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics.
0: I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. We're back. Same bad channel. I don't know if Matt actually. Oh,
1: you remembered.
0: I don't know if Matt actually put something in the last show, but I felt like I needed to carry it through. (laughs) Uh,
1: Just in case. There. That's Uh, that's just. Hopefully Matt took the noise that I just made and like edited it out and replaced it with the actual noise. No, no,
0: no. He's using that for sure. (laughs) This is why I feel the need to apologize. I know, this is why I feel the need to apologize to people when they say that they've like listened to all two (laughs) hundred and eighty six shows in a row. I'm like, really? Because the bad jokes are so bad.
1: (laughs) Here's the thing though. I have like a really special spot in my heart for puns. I love puns. They just make me happy. Can I share my favorite current pun with you?
0: I'm a little bit afraid, but also how can I say
1: no? (laughs) So uh, I've mentioned, I think on the podcast before, that we currently have two and a half cats because we are feeding this stray cat. And he's been coming by like every day, two, three times a day, and he's super friendly. But I'm still researching to try and figure out if he belongs to someone else. So I – catnapped him one day see I kidnapped him but he's a cat so I catnapped him see the pun see isn't that amazing Mm -hmm. and took him to the vet to see if he had a microchip and that's the whole that's the whole like we don't need to talk about the rest of the story I'm still trying to figure out if he needs a home the favorite pun is I bring him in but my favorite pun is I catnapped him and brought him to the vet I
0: thought that was just like a lead-in to something no
1: that's the whole pun that's it got it Puns are short. That's just, just one or two words. That's all puns are.
0: I wish so. that I had a gif of Cole rolling his eyes right now, because <laughs> I would totally flash it to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have been telling the story to people with catnapped every chance I get. I've probably told this story like 15 times. I catnapped the stray cat. And they look at me like, what? Get it? Kidnapped? But it's a cat?
0: I and am like, going to tell, tell that... that joke, and I'm using quotation marks because I can't, in good conscience, call it that without quotation marks. I'm going to retell that to Cole, and I'm going to video record his reaction for you because no one can offer the proper response, except Cole. I can
1: totally envision Cole's eyes really, too. I have such a clear picture of that in my face. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know my
0: oldest son, who is turning 13 this year...
1: He inherited somebody's sarcasm. Yeah,
0: he got all the sarcasm, all of it, and, like, (laughs) nothing else. Like, that's all
1: he's got is, like... Is a sweet young man
0: it's amazing right. when he like shares it in a um, practical way like when you know when he is making jokes intentionally like he's so funny and i obviously get his sense of humor because it's mine but also when he is crabby <laughs> there's like nothing worse <laughs> in the world so anyway he's he's the best at rolling his eyes at bad jokes so he
1: he, he really is that's like top like resume level skill set yes for sure Um, he
0: actually has like started his own YouTube channel, which I'm not going to share with you because, um... I don't need to send you his way, but, like, he literally has his own character. Like, it's not named him. He's named a character who is ridiculous, and, like, it's, like, this is his plan. His, his plan is to be a YouTube star, as is the plan of all almost 13-year-old boys. I, I mean,
1: I have an 8-year-old girl who wants to start, who's campaigning to start a YouTube channel because yeah. being a YouTube star is her current dream.
0: I said something to the kids the other day about this is what YouTube is for. We were... Oh, I know what it was. We were looking up a clip from an old movie. It was... I'm, I don't need to go into what it was but it was you know like an old movie and I made a joke and they didn't get the joke and so I had to pull up the clip of the movie and they were like why are you looking this up on YouTube and I was like this is what YouTube is for and they all <laughs> looked at me and they were like no it's not YouTube no, it's is for
1: kids to unbox toys and play with them and make 11 million dollars a year mom I know
0: oh my gosh this is completely off the rails but Finn was watching a YouTube video the other day of someone just guzzling water bottles just like eight ounce water bottles one after the other and i was like i could do that Like, <laughs> I could do this why are you watching this what are
1: you doing yeah okay, uh, move here's been watching people play minecraft and i'm like you you could just go play minecraft we're we're why are we really watching- we're
0: really I'm acting like- old right now we just what we have to move that? on i know it's a thing that's that's it's it's not just her it's every single child her age to 20 years old right now like i no one knows we, we can't possibly get it the same way our parents didn't get it when we were doing all the things we were doing teenagers
1: i, I, I am sure this is rotting their brains <laughs> i'm just saying yeah i mean I to sit too close to the television and that would rot my brain Yep. This is what's rotting my kids' brain.
0: And right now you just actually sprouted three more grey hair as you said that each time, <laughs> by the way.
1: <laughs> I'll get my cane. Exactly. Oh, can way not just around. not
0: just blue not just gray hair, but like they're actually blue. <laughs> the <laughs> ones when you when you say things like, It's rotting your brain. Uh, we didn't do that when I was a kid. Like every time you say something like that, like three I'm- blue hairs sprout straight up. So
1: I could tell you I have been saying they didn't. We didn't have. When I was a kid, so much lately. Um, and my kids are pre- either pretending to be interested or they're actually legitimately interested in how we like roughed it in the olden days without the internet. Yeah, <laughs> like,
0: the, the good old olden days. Yeah. Right? the 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 1900s. Yep, I get it. I'm I was there with Wesley. Okay. In, in the spirit, if not completely making our listeners want to blow their eardrums out. Um,
1: Let's not derail any further.
0: <laughs> so normally I have a segue, but I don't have a segue this week because...
1: segue queen. I'm counting on you. I know. I
0: thought maybe we were going to go somewhere with the kids where I could tie in vegetables and we just, we didn't get there and it's been too long. Mm-hmm. So let me just jump right in. We got amazing positive response for the vegetable show and that is why I love you listeners because you like learning and you enjoy information and I cannot tell you how gratifying it is to see your meals having more vegetables and hashtagging and tagging us and telling us about how you're inspired to eat more vegetables from that show because that is why we do what we do this this passion project right here <laughs> it, the reason that we're doing it is to be able to share that information with you and to be able to see you implement it in your life is honestly the exact validation that we need to to keep doing what we're doing so that said we did have a couple of follow-up questions from the show I and mean, we
1: had a ton of yes up questions. yes yes yes
0: um
1: We're honing in on a couple for
0: this show. Type of
1: topics,
0: we'll say a couple of type of follow-up questions in general um, that are a little more nuanced. So, If you haven't listened to the first vegetable show, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to it where we talk about why eating vegetables is so important and how much vegetables to eat, um, because it really lays the groundwork for these kind of follow-on shows. So we're going to call this part two, because we want to make sure that people go back and listen to part one, um, and hopefully this will answer
1: most of the questions that people have and we should help people out by saying part one i believe i believe was episode 281 so,
0: yeah i didn't i didn't want to say the wrong episode because then matt is just gonna make fun of us and
1: i hate giving him you fodder know, he could edit himself in right here <laughs> making fun of us yep and uh everyone will love it and his opportunity go matt
0: or you and can so be right.
1: And you also have just said you were correct. It was 281. Yep. That's so yep. It's great.
0: Either way, it's amazing for you listeners. So um, I'm excited. What do you got, Sarah?
1: Um, so I I grabbed – I kind of have this merge of two questions uh, from Sarah and from Rita because they there was so much overlap in their questions and they were really good representative of kind of a collection of one specific um, follow-up questions to our How Many Vegetables show, which was really – starting to deal with some of the uh other um I don't know if I want to call them health experts uh exactly but let's say um authority people who are <laughs> Could uh,
0: be any more <laughs> indirect
1: <laughs> uh, but um, there's There are some people who are advocating uh, for elimination of some types of vegetables for specific reasons, and that was like the natural question. When we're talking about eating uh, a really vegetable-rich diet, it's like, uh, does that mean all vegetables, or are there some vegetables that are better than others? And we've talked on this show a lot about things like FODMAPs, uh, the limitations with gaps in scd approaches in terms of not providing enough uh fermentable uh fiber substrate to support a you know the the good probiotic bacteria we've talked about that on the show before but um these particular questions got at an issue that i don't think we've actually ever addressed and i think it's it's going to be really important so i'm going to i'm going to kind of read this question in bits and pieces, and some of these bits are from Sarah, and some of these bits are from Rita, and they both said lots of very nice things about the podcast um, and about our work, which I will skip over, but clearly I will emphasize that saying nice things in questions is a great way to get your question on the show. Um, Shocker. Right? So um, both of them had actually been um, referred to a diet called um, the Plant Paradox Diet, Uh, There's a book called The Plant Paradox and uh, this is by Dr. Stephen uh, Gundry and he is like anti-lectin and like very anti-lectin. So his um, plant paradox diet uh, involves eliminating all of the things that are eliminated – on a paleo diet because of toxic lectins. So grains, legumes, um, also nightshades are also very high in lectins, which I I talk about in uh, the paleo approach and paleo principles. Um, But he also recommends eliminating uh, a large number of vegetables and fruits that he calls, you know, vegetables and fruits with high lectin content. So pretty much anything with skin and seeds such as apples, squashes, pumpkins, zucchinis, and so uh, in this the question goes on to read uh, in researching this book i 'm finding many horrible reviews not only of this book but also about his take on the dangers of lectins. However, there are also many promising stories of people who have been significantly helped by removing them from their diet, specifically by following his protocol. I'm curious what your take on lectins is. Uh, When I uh, thought about who I could turn to for advice on this, you were the first person that came to mind. I would love to hear your advice on lectins and anything you have to say about uh, this book by Stephen Gundry. So I'm going to stop there because I think the the follow-up question goes in a different direction. And... um, Kind of talk a little bit about what lectins actually are. So, lectins are an incredibly broad class of carbohydrate binding proteins. So, these are proteins that have the ability to bind to carbohydrates and they tend to be um, highly specific for specific carbohydrates. So, there's, you know, they, they have specific sugars that they bind to. And there's a tremendous number of different lectins. Um, There are many normal uh, proteins in our bodies that are lectins. Um, There are many that have vital roles in our health. Um, Many are important signaling molecules. They have all kinds of normal roles. And there are, of course, lectins in all plants. There's lectins in all forms of life, right? A protein that can bind to a specific carbohydrate is not that unusual of a thing to find in a life form. And it's one of the reasons why the original sort of branding of the paleo diet as being anti-lectin, uh, you know, we don't eat lectins, was really misleading because what um, what is the common thing about the foods that we eliminate, um, specifically sort of grains, legumes, and pseudograins, Um, And also nightshades fall into this category, which are eliminated on the autoimmune protocol, is two subclasses of lectins called prolamines and agglutinins. And these are the highly inflammatory, you know, gut health disrupting lectins that are in uh, grains, right? Gluten is a prolamine, wheat germ agglutinin is an agglutinin. Uh, high in legumes, like soy lectin is an agglutinin. High in nightshades, tomato lectin is an agglutinin. Um There's also very similar um, uh, prolamins and agglutinins in pseudograins like quinoa. And these, this, these particular subclasses um, are the ones that are really problematic. And part of how they're problematic is the specific sugars that they bind to trick our gut cells into bringing intact proteins into the body where they have uh, bioactivity. So it's a a protein from our food that's acting like a drug because it still can perform an action inside our body because it's not digested. Um, But these are really different. Like the the things that stand out about prolamines and agglutinins as as two subclasses of lectins is they are – They're both very high in the amino acid proline, and proline-rich proteins are not particularly compatible with our digestive enzymes. So our um, digestive system just can't break down these particular proteins very well, and they are uh, broken into typically like gluten is broken into very very predictable fragments. They're called gliadin fragments, and these gliadin fragments have known biological activity even in healthy people. So, for example, there was a relatively recent study, re- recent study that showed that uh, gliadin fragments get into the body even in a healthy person. So they they trick the gut cells into bringing them inside the body, and they bind with receptors in the liver and in fat cells, and turn on adiposity signals, which are signals to gain weight. So it's turning on hormones and things that impact metabolism and is probably the reason why there's a link between uh, gluten consumption and obesity. So um, so these are the lectins that are avoided on paleo. They're specifically these two subclasses, of lectins, prolamines, and agglutinins. It's not All lectins, because lectins are a very ubiquitous protein across all forms of life. And if you just said, I don't eat lectins, uh, any biologist would think you're cray cray. Um, So, one of the things that's been happening in the paleo community in the last few years is the movement to either, you know, differentiating these prolamines and agglutinins from other lectins by either calling them toxic lectins. I'm using air quotes there, which I know you can't see, but toxic lectins. Or uh, sometimes prolamines are called glutenoids because gluten is the best known example of a prolamine and they all have very similar structure to gluten. Um, But the idea is to try and be a little bit more specific in our language so that we're not saying, oh, you know, we don't eat all lectins because not all lectins are harmful. Um, So it's it's. You know, it's uh, and some, you know, some are completely toxic, right? Like ricin can kill you. Um, But I think it's really important to differentiate because when you can differentiate between these problematic subclasses of lectins and all other types of lectins, you can very clearly see that any kind of framework that starts talking about lectins in general and talks about, you know, omitting all lectins from the diet starts to be, really misunderstanding the science. And I I spent a fair bit of time today trying to understand some of the rationale behind um, this idea of, you know, some people take uh, Dr. Gundry's work and go, well, if you peel apples and zucchini and these other fruits and vegetables, then you're getting rid of most of the lectins and it's, and that's the best way to go. And that's the way some people have sort of handled this, Rebuttal, But so I spent a fair bit of time today trying to understand what type of lectins are in fruits and vegetables. And, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, going through the scientific literature, they are n- other than nightshades. Nightshades have agglutinins. And um, those are definitely a toxic lectin. Those are definitely a problem. Um, but nightshades are also a very different class of plants. There are over 2,000 different ones. Most of them are toxic for human consumption. Tobacco is a nightshade. Clearly, that's not cool. Um, so they—they—they're a very sort of different fam, like just botanical group. Um, everything else that I, they, you know, they just don't have prolamines or gluten. So if you look at, you know. Uh, stone fruits or uh, fruits from the apple family or um, squashes. Like, it, they don't they don't have these kinds of toxic lectins. And, um, you know, certainly antinutrients do tend to be concentrated in the peels. It's a way that an apple protects itself from being eaten from insects. Um, but the types of antinutrients that are in these foods, because the, – because these are all foods in which the seeds they've sort of co-evolved with us. And so they've, they've co-evolved in a way that, um, they, um, reproduce uh, their primary reproduction is by the seeds going through a GI tract first and being planted in manure. Um, and so they have a very different sort of self-defense mechanism compared to plants that have not co-evolved with, uh, animal consumption. So, um, so generally, even though there is a little bit more anti nutrient concentration in, say, an apple peel, there's also a very, very high phytochemical concentration, right? An antioxidant concentration in that same apple peel, and so most people don't need to peel them unless you're, you know, looking at something like conventional produce and pesticides. That's like a whole different argument. So, in terms of the idea of Eliminating certain fruits and vegetables because of lectin content. The only fruits and vegetables in which that is a valid argument is vegetables of the nightshade family, which are technically fruit. So tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, both hot and sweet, eggplant, chilies. So and then there's a few like tomatillos. There's a few other goji berries are sort of in that um, that category. And I've I have um, lists of all, you know, all commonly found nightshades on my website and in my books, like those those are lists that are pretty easy to find. So other than nightshades, like nightshades do have agglutinins and yep, definitely not good. You know, tomato lectin is an agglutinin that has been investigated for use in vaccines because it's so uh, good at activating the adaptive immune system, like definitely not, not cool. But generalizing that to other fruits and vegetables is not a valid argument. So I think one
0: of the things that's interesting to me about the lectin idea is that this became um, an original argument in the paleo community when we first started talking about grains. And it became quickly an argument that I realized no longer made sense once I understood that there were lectins also in... Um, so many fruits and vegetables and how much scientific information there is on vegetables being good for us and also from the perspective that I have that humans are omnivores based on our biological, um, uh, anthropologic lifetime, blah, 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 blah. It became difficult for me to make the same argument about grains. So then I looked into well what are the other mechanisms and things that are actually problematic. And so for me, I think it's it's also part of a larger picture. There are going to be things in almost every food that we look at that can be positive and negative. We've talked about this with dairy. We've talked about this with coffee. We've talked about this with tea. We've talked I mean like you name it and we've talked about it either here on the podcast or we could talk about it here on the podcast from Both what things can do from a beneficial perspective as well as for not, um, you know, we can have the same conversation about FODMAP type food. We've had the same conversation about um, cruciferous vegetables as it relates to or does not relate to thyroid health and blah, 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 right? So uh, I think anyone can take a piece of information and pull out the part that they want to focus on and say, well, this is a problem and therefore don't do it. But We try to think about things from a holistic perspective when we're talking about um, everybody being included and all of the information that is um, around. And it is the case that obviously some people are going to be sensitive to some foods, whether it's nightshades or whether it's a different thing that you in particular have a sensitivity to. I mean, we've talked about it here on the show I can't do corn, it's incredibly problematic for me, but Sarah can. Meanwhile, I can do high fat quality dairy and Sarah cannot. So, you know, there's there's just differences in people's bodies if you're noticing that you react to a certain food. That's why we do elimination diets and we slowly bring things in so that you can test what works for you and what doesn't work for you. I can tell you seeing zucchini on the list is it like made me and, and apples, those two in particular kind of made me laugh because they're some of the most like mild <laughs> from a digestion perspective they Um, for example, zucchini is not on any list that I'm aware of when it comes to FODMAPs, histamine, um, uh, low carb for the one SCD, um, AIP, right? Like every single one of those diets, unless Sarah I'm forgetting something, like zucchini is okay on all of them. So to see this on a on a list of like this one in particular is high is a high problem of like,
1: really? <laughs> like- right. Well and that sort of is part of Sarah's question was like how do you explain the people who are helped by this diet. And I think, like, look at all the stuff that they're cutting out that are problematic for most people, right? They're cutting, you know, they are cutting out grains and legumes. And uh, I think dairy is cut out, if I remember correctly, although I'm not 100% sure on that, um, and cutting out nightshades. Like, those are a lot of the eliminations on the autoimmune protocol. So cutting out, you know, it's, Unfortunately, we're cutting out uh, things that don't need to be cut out, but we're also cutting out all of these sort of like worst offender foods. So it's not a surprise that someone would do better, but are they doing as well as they could do with something like paleo or the autoimmune protocol that has a much more sophisticated way of looking at the pros and cons of foods, um, a much more, you know, very solidly rooted in scientific studies um, and also recognizes bioindividuality and completely endorses self-experimentation to figure out our own tolerance to foods that have checks in both the pros and the cons column. And it's you know I've talked about this on the show before, but that's one of the reasons why in Paleo Principles, I I it was really important to me to be extremely clear about the current boundaries of human knowledge. And about this idea that some foods are not black and white, some foods have pros and cons, and they're going to work for some people, they're not going to work for others. And even some foods that have more cons than pros may still be tolerated by people. I don't subscribe to the idea that everybody needs to be gluten-free all of the time. I think we've clearly seen some genetic adaptation. I think we clearly see differential responses. That doesn't mean that I think a gluten-containing food is ever a nutritious food, but that's different than saying sort of dogmatically that, you know, gluten is toxic and everyone should avoid it all the time. I think there's a majority of the population that's sensitive, probably somewhere on the order of 60 percent based on, uh, you know, genetic um Uh, like the the frequency of genetics in the population that are linked with with gluten. And the other 40% or maybe even less than that because there might be some other genetics that we don't know about um, that are predisposing people to to gluten sensitivity. But I do think there's a a proportion of the population that's just fine with gluten once in a while. And if you can get their diets to be nutrient-dense choices most of the time – some gluten in their diet is not going to cause any harm, and so I think that it's it's really important to emphasize that Paleo shouldn't be dogmatic, and the autoimmune protocol even it's a little bit more rigid because you're now you're talking about purely that population with these genetic genetic susceptibilities, you're talking about a population with. Uh, health challenges that predispose them to an immune system that is going to uh, overreact to inflammatory compounds and in foods. So the, the structure is necessarily um, just a little bit more solid because you're you're identifying a group of people who are not going to be able to find as much flexibility at least at first, but it's so. I mean, either paleo approach had 1,200 references. Paleo principles had over 1,400. Like, these aren't these are not um, based on uh, simplistic ideas like lectins are bad, right? It's it's based on a much more sophisticated approach, and um, I don't believe in cutting out potentially nutritious foods um, unless there's a really compelling reason to do so.
0: I feel like I needed a chant, eat more veggies, eat
1: more veggies.
0: <laughs> All right. What's the second half of this question?
1: So the second half of this question is specifically part of Rita's question, um, which was another like anti-vegetable thing that she's heard. Um, this one from Sally K. Norton regarding high oxalate-containing foods, specifically spinach and chard. Um, and, uh, and basically Rita goes on to say that she's – very confused by the idea of these additional restrictions, right? The um, you know lectin, you know, Gundry lectin restrictions, which we've I, I hope debunked, and the Norton oxalate restrictions. And I, you know, I think oxalate sensitivity requires a little bit more of a conversation because it's not something that we've talked about a whole lot. Um, so oxalate uh, is. It's put into a similar sort of category as phytate because uh, it binds to minerals in the plant and makes them less absorbable by our bodies. So therefore, it's sort of technically an anti-nutrient. Um, but you know, similar to phytate, uh, oxalates, the minerals can be liberated by uh, gut bacteria, and that this also happens with phytate. So a lot of the minerals that are bound with phytates in plants, if you're not consuming too much phytates, can be liberated by our gut bacteria. So they're made absorbable for us. So just hearing the word anti-nutrient doesn't automatically mean this is a horrible, horrible thing. Oxalates are actually like bound to, um, you know, bound to some great minerals in plants. And oxalates are also something that our bodies. Produce um, and specifically produce in the metabolism of vitamin C, glycine, glycolate, and hydroxyproline. So it's it's a product of metabolism that our bodies produce naturally. Um, And so and there's a lot of you know um, Rita mentioned, chard and spinach. There's a lot of high-oxalate foods that are part of a paleo-friendly diet, a lot of leafy greens, turnip greens, collards, kale, watercress, most berries, most nuts, uh, tea, sweet potatoes, um, most uh, cruciferous vegetables, so broccoli, cabbage, chocolate is high in oxalates, beets, cassava, carrots, rhubarb. So if you're looking at a low-oxalate diet and paleo, it suddenly starts to look very, very limiting. Um, So what oxalate sensitivity is, so it's important to kind of emphasize here that there is actually no medical definition for oxalate sensitivity. So if you compare this to something like FODMAP sensitivity, histamine sensitivity, salicylate sensitivity, sulfur sensitivity— those have mechanisms behind them that are well understood in the medical literature uh, and therefore they have this sort of medical definition, this designation. This is a, a type of food sensitivity. Oxalate sensitivity actually doesn't have that because there, there isn't, it isn't, re, it's not super a thing, but let me explain that first before people get all upset. So it typically refers to people who have a tendency to develop kidney stones or muscle and joint pain when they eat high oxalate foods, um, and the reason why this happens is in some people, uh, the concentration of um, basically their bodies produce a lot of oxalates, and what happens is when the body can't eliminate them, so the concentration of oxalates and calcium in the urine becomes too high, um, then the the they Bind together and they form what are called calcium oxalate crystals. They form in the kidneys, they can develop into stones. And um, if oxalates become too high in the blood, oxalate crystals can build up uh, in joints, in muscle tissue, and they're, they're quite little. They're, they're a crystal that are like this shard like structure. So it can lead to a, a condition called oxalate arthritis. And those are like true, legitimate. Things that happen, they're called uh, hyperoxaluria and oxalosis. They're legitimate conditions uh, that affect approximately one in three million people uh, due to a genetic predisposition to having too much oxalate being produced in the body. And then it also happens in other people who have absorption disorders. Um, so things like Crohn's disease, celiac Uh, chronic pancreatitis, it's a common side effect after, or not common, but a possible side effect after bariatric surgery. And in those people who don't absorb nutrients very well, uh, for some reason they can absorb too much oxalates from the gut and then also end up with this high oxalate concentration. So it doesn't appear to happen outside of of those conditions. And there's some supporting scientific evidence to sort of support that um, reducing oxalates, if you don't fit into those, either that one in three million people with a genetic disorder that causes um, too much oxalates to be produced, or somebody with one of these sort of devastating GI conditions uh, affecting absorption. And it's not like it happens. It's not like every person with Crohn's needs to go on a low oxalate diet. It's just that we this with a higher frequency, it's still not high frequency in people with Crohn's. Um, What's interesting is that uh, dietary oxalates don't proportionately increase urinary oxalates. So we don't see a really strong correlation between high oxalate diets and high levels of oxalates in the blood or in the urine. Um so that's that's you know like evidence one that there's something maybe not cut and dried happening here um and it's in part because we have a variety of different mechanisms to uh control our oxalate levels um There are a bunch of different bacteria in the gut who degrade oxalates, so there's one specific strain. Uh, called Axalobacter formagenes, which um, are, you know, there's some interesting sort of preclinical studies looking at uh, probiotics with this particular strain for treating, uh, you know, kidney stones. Like that's kind of cool research. There's nothing available on the market yet, but they're not the only strains that can actually degrade oxalates. A lot of our, you know, super run-of-the-mill lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains are great oxalate degraders as well. And they, you know, degrade oxalates, they reduce absorption, and they can also stimulate the secretion of oxalates that's already in our bodies. So there's a lot of ways that our bodies can deal with it. So um, one of the reasons why we're seeing this high oxalate in, like, Crohn's and celiac is because of the gut dysbiosis on top of the gut barrier integrity issues. So. Probi like the, the gut health piece here is is huge. Um there's also uh a lot of other factors that are much stronger contributors to stone formation than oxalate consumption. In fact, there I mean there's some research showing that because if you consume oxalates, you feed more of these oxalate degrading bacteria, that consuming a high oxalate diet can actually reduce risk of kidney stones. And in part that's because of the Gut health issue, these foods that are high in oxalates are all great foods for our gut bacteria, but also dehydration is actually the number one cause of the formation of uh, oxalate stones and crystals. Um, there's also a link with calcium supplements, so not dietary calcium, but calcium calcium supplements, but also calcium deficiency. So, calcium. Overdoing it with calcium supplements and not getting enough dietary calcium, both increase risk of of stones and um, a lot of the, a lot of phytochemicals that are also found in these um, high oxalate foods are also known to independently reduce risk of uh, oxalate, of of kidney stones. So it's, um, it's one of those things that Uh, The arguments against eating oxalates are good for a very limited specific number of people. I think one of the things that we've heard before, you know, every once in a while someone gets on this is like, if you eat oxalates, it sucks the minerals out of your body. Or if you eat phytates, it sucks the minerals out of your body. You might as well not eat any. If you eat the spinach with something else, you won't absorb any of the minerals and that's completely untrue. A oxalate or a phytate, by definition, is already bound to a mineral. Um, the acid is oxalic acid or phytic acid. When it becomes a salt because it binds with a mineral, it becomes oxalate or phytate. Once it's bound to a mineral, it cannot bind with anything else. And um, and our gut bacteria can liberate those minerals and degrade the the acid for us and actually liberate a lot of the minerals and make them absorbable. So that's one good thing. And what the form in plants is not usually the acid. It's usually the salt. So the form that we're eating, we're getting oxalates from spinach, not oxalic acid from spinach. So it's already bound. So the problem might be more that the minerals in that spinach are a little bit harder for us to absorb. It's a little bit more reliant on gut health. But it's not like it's full of things that are going to sop up the minerals (laughs) in our body and make us deficient in minerals. That's not actually a thing here. And when you look at the ability for these foods to feed really beneficial strains of bacteria that can actually help decrease risk of kidney stones and help, um, you know, encourage oxalate homeostasis, the argument really starts to fall apart in terms of avoiding these particular foods. And even for people who have sort of self-diagnosed oxalate sensitivity, I I kind of want to just point out that there is a huge amount of overlap between the oxalate food lists, the histamine food lists, and the salicylate food lists. And I it's sort of my belief that when oxalate sensitivity is based on symptoms that most of the time it's a uh mis, sort of a, a, a misunderstanding of uh what is the the cause behind those symptoms and it's it's probably histamine or salicylate intolerance instead of oxalates um and even the the symptoms uh can be um can be, can be similar. So a lot of the symptoms that are attributed to oxalates are also symptoms of histamine and salicylate intolerance. So I would definitely encourage somebody who is thinking that they have a sensitivity to oxalates to investigate uh, histamine intolerance, to investigate salicylate intolerance. Those are more likely culprits. Or do genetic testing and find out if you're somebody who makes oxalate stones. Like if you're someone who makes kidney stones, that's a different argument. That's a talk to your doctor type thing. Pros and cons and probiotics and all those good things. Um, but it's it's become one of those those demonized anti nutrients, and it's just not an anti nutrient in the same class as um, you know the 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 things that are in like grains that we don't. Consume right. It's there's um it's it's deemed an anti nutrient because it it can bind with these minerals, but it's such a it's such a minor. It, it, I mean, it's like a technical designation rather than a practical designation. So, uh, oxali- high oxalate foods just there's there's for most people there's there's really not a compelling argument to make avoiding them the exception being people with uh, absorption issues and um, people with the genetic predisposition. And if you're those people, if you're absorption issues, it's not a permanent low oxalate diet. There may be some benefits to some oxalates to help grow those uh, oxalate degrading bacteria in the gut. Uh, The research shows right now the best thing you can do to support – those particular bacteria in the gut is just by eating high oxalate foods there's not they're very very sensitive to things like antibiotics. there's not a probiotic with them, and basically all the research shows right now is the more oxalates you eat the more in general of those bacteria you have in your gut so it's one of those like feed them and they will be there um, and I think it's really important to understand that you know even histamine intolerance even salicylate sensitivity um, there's there's things that you can do to mitigate those. And, um, you know, they're both conditions that are very, very strongly rooted in gut health. So working gut health in general can make those intolerances go away. I'm still
0: a little bit confused. So let's just break it down. I, I think from the conversations you and I have had, um, for the general person, um, I try to eat somewhat cooked spinach <laughs> if I'm eating like a large meal with other things. And I felt like that was my like middle ground of this is the thing to do is to not eat a ton of raw spinach with other foods because it could potentially disrupt
1: absorption. No, and- you're wasting your time. It's not it's- a thing. <laughs> so I'm like- It's not a thing. And I, I'm Sure, it is not a thing. Eating spinach with other food is not going to inhibit your absorption of nutrients from another food. Let's be like completely clear. That is not a thing. And people who say that's a thing don't know what the bleep they're talking about. I'm sorry. I got a little excited there. I think I'm clear now. Okay. We're good. Uh, Yeah. So the presence of a compound bound with a mineral does not mean – that all other nutrients in that food will not be absorbed. It means the the mineral that it's bound to requires being like unbound by gut bacteria for you to absorb it. So depending on how healthy your gut bacteria are, you might not get all of the minerals out of that – you might not get all of the calcium out of the spinach because some of it will stay bound to uh, oxalic acid in an oxalate molecule – and will not get absorbed by your body. But it's not it's not binding anything else and cooking it's not making a difference. So eat spinach, spinach is great. Eat it however you like it.
0: Fortunately for me, I like it a little cooked. <laughs> I'm just no. kidding.
1: I'm just saying it be fine. It. I'm not saying I'm not saying cooking it is bad. I'm just saying that if you're if you're doing it to think you'll absorb the nutrients better, that just it you're it's not that's yes. not a thing. I got that. I'm good. Thank you.
0: Um, so if I heard you correctly, there's no real way to test for this except an elimination diet, correct?
1: Um, so you can do tests for oxalate levels in urine. Um, so, for example, in kidney stone formers, that's how you know one of the tests that they will do, they'll do a urine analysis and look for the levels of oxalates in the urine. Um so there there is ways that a doctor can follow this up with you um and uh you know food diaries can definitely tell you a lot um but it this should not be diagnosed based on symptoms so oxalate sensitivity should be based on um like it's kidney stones and uh, oxalate crystals and joints is like the, the two main ways that this manifests. So like and- gout? Is that what you mean? Or other uh, other know, joints as well? Gout not oxalate stones, it's uric acid stones. Like
0: uh, acid got, it, got it, got it, got um,
1: it. But hey, how cool that I had that in my head and knew to say that. I'm kind of impressed with that.
0: I'm impressed as well. Gout runs in my family, although for those of you that don't know, it runs in men and not women. So it's not something I have to... I don't have that problem um but i'm always kind of curious about it we can get gout don't yeah 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 they can but it's it, it's um like the numbers for it are much less
1: um gout is also covered on page 271 in paleo principles it's good to know <laughs> which i only knew because i had the index right there i don't actually remember what page everything's on <laughs> um so I like if we get into gout, we're going we're going beyond the the scope of this particular podcast. But we- no, 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 no,
0: no. I wasn't. I, yes, I wasn't trying to. I mean, I'll I'll gladly add to your list um, for for my own selfish reasons. But I just was wondering when you said crystals in the joints, like I happen to know that that is a crystal in the joint disease. Sounds like it's just so, the
1: wrong kind in, of in crystal. It's uric acid crystals in oxalate sensitivity. It's oxalate crystals, so it's it's just a different a different molecule. Um, it would feel very similar, um, but this is a this is a very low frequency true sensitivity, and a it's kind of the candida of food sensitivities. Um, and we probably haven't talked about candida on the show in a long, long time. But candida is also very, very frequently diagnosed based on symptoms, and it's almost always not actually candida. Um, so the symptoms. Of overgrowth, it's all, you know, overgrowth is much much more commonly bacterial rather than yeast, and the symptoms of candida are are you know it's it's not something that you should be diagnosing based on symptoms. It's something that you can test for, and test for it. Then, um, it's it's not something that should be diagnosed based on on symptoms. It can be viral, it can be bacterial, it can be yeast, um, but depending on what it is, changes how you deal with it. So, uh, you know, doing doing some testing and this is where I'm going to plug just the whole idea of functional medicine again because functional medicine integrative medicine specialists are the people who will actually do these tests and and dig deeper and provide you know, you know, cool therapies like probiotics and uh, you know, gut healing protocols. Uh, they might put you on the AIP Um, you know, they're, they're going to have a much more sophisticated way of dealing with it and they're going to have, you know, a good functional or integrative medicine practitioner is going to use a variety of strategies. They're going to use diet, they're going to use lifestyle, they're going to use, uh, cutting edge therapies like IV nutrition or, uh, infrared saunas, right? They're going to, they're going to use neat stuff like that. And then they're going to use, uh, botanicals when necessary, Nutrition-based supplements when necessary, and they're going to use uh, pharmaceuticals when those are the best options. So they're going to use every good tool that they have available and um, cater what's going on to you, and not use anything that's unnecessary. They're going to use judicious use of of intervention. So uh, plug plug for functional medicine specialists in general, right there.
0: Sweet. Well, I feel like we answered a lot and even tangentially covered some other topics thrown in there as well. I know we've got uh, a long list and perhaps just added to it during the show. Um, gout for gout. Gout. Um, yeah. My. Anyway, I don't even want to get into that. We can talk about that at a different <laughs> time. Um, but thank you for tuning in and listening. And if you have even more vegetable related questions we obviously welcome you to reach out either through the contact form on our blog or in social media or even comment on the blog post where we put up the podcasts all of those are great ways to reach us and um, we will be happy to either answer questions directly or potentially even go even more deeper into the vegetable uh, depths. But in the meantime, we thank you for listening and tuning in. And if you've enjoyed the show, we would love for you to recommend it to a friend, family, loved one, coworker, spouse, who just doesn't get things. Anybody, anybody, (laughs) Please, we love it when you share the podcast and when you leave reviews on um, iTunes and Stitcher, it allows other people to find the podcast as well. So uh, one more thing I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention earlier, and that is because... I am just a forgetful person who doesn't have my calendar in front of me all the time. But um, when this show goes live, I'll actually be uh, probably have something up on the blog, if not in the next day or two, um, about a self-love series that I'm actually going to be speaking on that I think is really relevant. Um, I'm going to be focusing on being healthy inside and out, because I think that there's going to be a lot of different speakers that are going to focus a lot on emotional healing and um, allowing yourself to love yourself. A lot of the self-love and respect stuff that I focus on. Um, And the audience is going to be completely different in most cases from kind of a paleocentric audience. So I am going to talk about how um, eating with self-respect is self-love and how, you know, we need to let go of things like, emotion, connect to food, and guilt and shame and all that kind of stuff, but we also need to actually love ourselves through the way that we nourish um, both the outside and insides of our bodies. So if that's something you're interested in, I would love for you to participate. I'm pretty sure it's going to be free, uh, but I'm going to have all the details on the blog posts that I write about it and, of course, in our newsletter. So you can either sign up for our newsletter on the sidebar of our blog or you can just go to realeverything.com. And I'll have the post there as well for more information on that series. As you know, I don't do a lot of these, like maybe (laughs) one a year. I, I gave up doing this kind of stuff a long time ago, but I really loved the message and that it would be to a broad, like a different type of audience that I'm used to connecting to. So I'm actually really looking forward to checking out the rest of the series myself <laughs> and hopefully being inspired myself by some of the speakers so if that's something you're into i'd love uh to connect there and of course um you can find sarah's newsletter and sarah's blog as well
1: <laughs> at the paleomom.com like I have one of those yes like
0: while i'm while i'm plugging my own blog like yes, yeah, sarah has a website as well um so th- thanks for for letting me sneak that in there at the end sarah
1: I mean, that sounds really exciting to me. So I I, um, I love the sort of summit online conference model. I, I, I think that's something that's really exciting. And this sounds like a really great one. And it sounds like maybe a, a topic that, I mean, it's I for sure a topic that people will find worthwhile, but maybe not a topic that people are used to finding time for compared to a lot of the more – you know paleo autoimmune gut health right diabetes those type of ones that um are been more common in our in our community lately so i definitely will echo what stacy said and and uh, encourage everyone to check it out and i will also say thanks for listening and we'll be back next week thank you for listening to the paleo view if you enjoyed the show Please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Hello. Uh, the sound again. Why? Oh, it must- So I have felt like Skype doesn't remember the sound settings from the last call anymore.
0: And then I just open the preference window. I don't even need to push any buttons. I just open the preference window and it figures itself out. Like,
1: really? Skype? Really? It's like a dog who knows they're doing something bad and right before you yell at them, they they stop and, like, go sit in the corner. Um, Or child. Child, Children do that too. The children